The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it is one of the world's most famous ancient texts, reputedly written by a Chinese general named Sun Tzu, about whom we know almost nothing. We have one story, often repeated, but it's so full of holes we don't need to credit it much. What we do have is the context of his era and the work he left behind, the art of war, which has been studied and applied for centuries by generals and lay readers alike. Just who was Sun Tzu? Or at least, who do we think he might have been? And perhaps more importantly, what do we know about war and peace in his era? What's in his famous book? And why has this 2,500-year-old text proved so enduring? Sun Tzu and the Art of War, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you could join us today. A great ancient book, older than the Gospels, not as old as the Epic of Gilgamesh, roughly as old as the Iliad and the Odyssey, or at least their written form, give or take a hundred years or so. But unlike those books, we are in the world of Dynasty China, specifically the second half of the Zhou Dynasty, also known as the Eastern Zhou, so named I believe, because they moved their capital eastward. We're in the first half of the second half of the Zhou dynasty, if that's not too confusing for you, the first half of the second half. I'll run through the list of dynasties in a moment with a particular focus on the Warring States period, or actually the one that precedes it, the Spring and Autumn period. Spring and Autumn sounds much more pleasant than Warring States, much more peaceful and tranquil, but as we'll see, there's a, there was a lot of war going on during this period as well. Also, a lot of cultural flourishing. This is roughly the age of Confucius and the age of Lao Tzu, the Taoist philosopher. Poetry was prominent, as was the I Ching, or Book of Changes. The Art of War was written during this period, spring and autumn, and was widely applied in the following period, Warring States, and it became a kind of classic text, much anthologized, included in a version of the canon in China for the next 2,000 years. It arrived in Europe in the 18th century via a French translation, was translated into English in the 19th, and has been influential among Western military leaders and others interested in leadership or history or philosophy or, let's say, psychology ever since. So before we get to the history of the book and its author, Sun Tzu, let me talk about my plan for The Art of War. I was wrong about this book. I was planning to talk about all the adaptations of The Art of War, how it's become kind of an airport book, or or maybe more accurately, it's become the source of many airport books. I'll run through a more comprehensive list toward the end, when we get to the book's legacy and influences. But you know the kind of thing I'm talking about. The art of boardroom meetings, how Sunza's art of war can help you dominate the C-suite, and that kind of thing. And I planned to say, throw all those books to the side, clear them off your table with your arm, because the boardroom is not a battlefield. The comparison is ridiculous. Stop saying there's an An Art of Marriage, How to Dominate the Domestic Battleground, According to Sun Tzu. I made that one up, but not by much, as we'll see. I planned to say that war has such different features, it's really not a serious thing to use this book for those purposes. Now, let's talk about the actual book and limit our discussion to war. That was my plan. But then I read the book again, which takes an hour or so, maybe less. Maybe a little more, if you read the annotated version. And I could see that my criticisms were misplaced, though not in the way that you might expect. I will explain all that later. Okay, I've been promising a bunch of laters, so let's just dive in. Who was Sun Tzu? As you might expect for a 2,500-year-old text, we don't exactly know. Even the few facts that were believed for centuries have been called into dispute by later scholars. 
The name Sun Tzu or the other names that have been thought to be his were not included in some historical annals, which has led scholars to think that this might have been a text written by an author who is lost to time or that it was misattributed for a while. And the actual historical person who wrote the thing is now shrouded in fog. He is believed to have been a general, but instead of being a famous general, if indeed he was a general at all, he is more likely to have been more of a military strategist, perhaps advising leaders like the King of Wu. And in fact, the legendary story ascribed to Sun Tzu, which was added to some later versions of the text, is that he demonstrated his abilities to the King of Wu by accepting a kind of challenge to train the women in the king's harem, 180 of them, to prepare to be soldiers. He then presented himself as general of this concubine army, divided them into two companies, and appointed the king's two favorite concubines to be the officer of each of the companies. He asked them to turn left, turn right, turn back, and face forward, basic commands, and the women giggled. He said, it is my duty as general to make sure they understand the commands. So he ensured that they did, and then gave a second order, and they giggled again. So in his next order, he announced that the king's, the two officers, the king's favorite concubines, would be beheaded. The king protested, but the general insisted that his duty as general of the king's army was to make sure that the army was well-trained and disciplined. He gave the orders again. This time, no giggling. The company was well-trained. That's the story, anyway. Two main lessons come from it. First, that winning is essential in war. It's nothing to laugh about. The general must take it very seriously, even if it means displeasing the king killing a pair of darlings, as Faulkner might put it. The king will be more displeased if he loses a battle because there is no discipline. That's the logic behind that. Second lesson, obviously, is that fear of death is one way of making sure the soldiers are ready to obey. I don't think you read The Art of War and think, okay, kill two people in order to get 180 people to follow orders. Got it. Thanks. It's not quite that prescriptive, but it does come across as as expressing the idea war is so consequential with existential stakes that when it comes to something as fundamentally important as discipline or intelligence or supplies, you don't play around. I'm reminded, this is an aside, but I'm reminded of a passage in Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander series, speaking of discipline, where they, they take a bunch of treasure and one of the soldiers says, maybe we should just pocket some of this. Well, maybe we should just pocket some of this right here. Just po- <laughs> Let me cite the passage. O'Higgins here is a Chilean soldier, a leader. The surprise, of course, is a ship. Quote, inside there were four large chests of silver and a moderate chest of gold, curiously Curiously enough, they were only closed with a hasp, and on seeing their contents, a soldier who had been in the surprise said they had all risked their lives to gain this wealth, and that in his opinion, it should be shared out equally at once. Now, now, equally and at once. His opinion was supported by several men there, but O'Higgins said, a fig for your opinion, and shot him dead. End quote. That's the kind of rough justice we're talking about. Do not go down this path. If you are the leader of a guerrilla army or a state army or a, a ship full of soldiers, you cannot afford to take chances. If you have an idea that could lead to defeat or delay or disobedience, or if, I mean, not you, if, you, if a soldier has an idea that could lead to defeat or delay or disobedience or some other kind of disharmony, If that person expresses selfish or insurrectionist ideas, they had better not say them out loud, better not even to think them, unless that person wants to be put to death. War is demanding and all-consuming. Leaders have to be ruthless in imposing discipline. If that was all there was to the art of war, it wouldn't be that interesting. Luckily, there's more. But first, let's wrap up the era in which it was written. So, what was Sun Tzu's era? 
As I mentioned, it was called the Spring and Autumn Period, which seems ancient by Western standards, but Chinese history goes so far back that it might be worth talking about the dynasties that came before to give you some perspective. My apologies if I'm mispronouncing any of these or any of the Chinese names and terms in this episode, for that matter. A lot of this comes from reading, not lectures or conversation. The first Chinese dynasty was the Xia, X-I-A, which was about 4,000 years ago until about 3,600 years ago. It's believed to have been founded by Yu the Great, who was good at managing floods, so important in that on that landscape for developing agriculture and preventing ruined crops. We don't have contemporary writings about the Shia dynasty, so it's often draped in myths and legends. The next 500 or so years was ruled by the Shang dynasty. This one has more archaeological evidence for it. China was ruled by a king, 31 kings in succession, according to historical accounts. There were great developments in this period, like the calendar, an early form of the Chinese language, astronomy, art, math, and military technology. Which brings us to our dynasty, which started about 3,000 years ago and ran for about 800 years, the Zhou dynasty. This was an age of rising cultural achievements. Chopsticks became widespread, writing was codified, money went into circulation in the form of coins, and Chinese philosophy flourished the age of Confucius, the age of Lao Tzu, and the age of Sun Tzu. Kings were considered divinely blessed. Within the Zhou dynasty, political economy moved from the spring and autumn period to the warring states period. What does that mean for our purposes? Well, let's look at warfare. In the spring and autumn period, there were dozens of individual states within the overall dynasty. They were ruled by hereditary families who were also in charge of the military for each of those states. They oversaw the farms. There was much more farming now than hunting or trade. They attended to the harvest and stored grain. Famine was always a danger. There were insect pests, floods, dry conditions, and a failed harvest presented for the leadership an existential crisis. A hungry state might go seek food from another state. Sometimes this was done through an alliance or some kind of exchange. Other times, it was through conquest. The warfare at the time was mostly carried out by an elite warrior class, which was also hereditary. In some ways, this was a requirement because to be in the elite warrior class, you had to train yourself in archery and horses and chariot driving. That meant that you had to be able to afford two horse chariots and the armored protection that came with it. This wasn't cheap, and it was hard to replace losses. The warrior class being hereditary meant that a soldier who died on the battlefield might be replaced by one of his own children, which was a slow way to grow an army. This class was responsible for self-defense of the territory and could be summoned to go on missions of conquest when necessary or desirable. They were also very mobile. Each unit was a two-horse chariot, a driver, and a few foot soldiers as an infantry screen. The foot soldiers could be pulled from the farming populace, but they would need equipment and training as well. Farmers could also be drafted to help build walls for self-defense. These walls were common, as besieging a city took months and was resource-intensive, a good way to protect the people within. But you can see how the conditions of the military would drive the decision-making of the generals. States did not have massive standing armies who would feed them. People were needed for the farms. Usually, the states had enough for a single campaign, and going on a campaign meant that the home territory was left vulnerable. It was much better, therefore, to win quickly and free up the military for the next campaign, or to return for self-defense. The bigger the army got, the harder it was to feed. There were not vast state resources to throw at a war, and a campaign that went badly could easily bankrupt a state. Major campaigns were rarely fought by a single state. They would be waged by networks of temporary alliances. Another big advantage was intelligence and speed. 
If you could mount your campaign before the other military had the chance to be assembled, you might win without fighting. Or if you knew that your enemy had stretched itself too thin, perhaps they had gone out to conquer some other state, but they were currently vulnerable, you might quickly swoop in and conquer it. That could supply the grain and territory that your state needed to grow or survive. Throughout this period, the smaller states became consolidated into larger ones. One account I read said that 86 states known to have existed had shrunk to 15 by the end of the spring and autumn period. As these states consolidated with greater territory and higher numbers of people, they could implement more sophisticated administrative techniques, allowing them to be stronger and more efficient. Perhaps most important for us, they could also afford larger armies, and they filled these ranks with less trained and less equipped soldiers. Instead of two-horse chariots, these were forces trained in hand weapons. The charioteers became officers of these armies, but the battles turned from quick and relatively small skirmishes to ones with larger forces that were more rapidly replaced. I give you that background to give you some sense of why this book, The Art of War, written during a period where dozens of states were fighting small-scale battles, shouldn't really have much to tell us now. Indeed, there are details about the cost of metal armor and descriptions of swift chariots that would have a procurement officer today scratching his or her head. What's this got to do with me? Who cares how many pieces of silver the armor cost in China 2,500 years ago? Or when it says, avoid besieging walled cities, it will take three months to get all your equipment there and three months to pile up mounds of earth to go over the walls. Well, we're reading history, not how-to. But, and this is jumping ahead a bit, it's kind of fascinating to read, and it's at least analogous. And that's interesting and helpful. Here's an example of what I mean. In The Art of War, we read, quote, when there is dust rising in a high column, it is the sign of chariots advancing. When the dust is low but spread over a wide area, it betokens the approach of infantry. When the dust branches out in different directions, it shows that parties have been sent to collect firewood. A few clouds of dust moving to and fro signify that the army is encamping. I don't think... Generals Colin Powell and Norman Schwarzkopf were reading The Art of War so they could determine whether a high column of dust meant that Saddam Hussein's chariots were imminent, obviously. But when you read that, you might take from it, well, what signs will I have that my enemy's army is advancing? Will satellite photos tell me? Do I have indicators that they're moving and who it is that's moving and how and for what purpose? Will I know when they've stopped? When they've decided to stay in one place for days, how will I know that? What signals will tell me and how reliable are they? And what signals am I giving off that's detectable to my enemy? And since this was used by so many other types of leaders, not just military leaders, I'll give you another example. Sun Tzu says, quote, When the soldiers stand leaning on their spears, they are faint from want of food. End quote. This is good information, both of your enemy and and of your own troops. If it's your enemy, you might take the opportunity to press your advantage. If it's your own people, it might be time to withdraw. Reminded me of basketball coaches watching for players who bend over, especially when they put their hands on their thighs and tug at the ends of their shorts, a sign of fatigue. Or when a player puts both hands above his head, another sign of being out of breath. Time to take the big man out for a rest. He's tugging his shorts. Or, look at the other team. They're all gasping for air. Let's keep up the tempo. Or, let's go at their best player. We can see that he's exhausted. Let's keep tiring him out. It comes down to the famous phrase, know your enemy. Or opponent, we should probably say in the basketball context. Know your enemy and yourself. A good coach, like a good general, will recognize these observational clues and be ready to exploit them. Let's take a quick break and then talk about the structure and contents of the text. We see how it gives us lessons, and we've seen how anything particular is most likely outdated. Let's see what we can take from the rest of The Art of War. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We are back. The Art of War. What's in the book, The Art of War? The Art of War is short by our standards. Just 13 chapters, about ten or 11,000 words if you're reading it without the commentary. That's not even as long as a novella. It's a short story on the longish side. You can read the whole thing, as I said, easily in an hour. The chapters are as follows. 1. Laying plans. 2. Waging war. 3. Attack by stratagem. 4. Tactical dispositions. 5. Energy. 6. Weak points and strong. 7. Maneuvering. 8. Variation of tactics. 9. The Army on the March. 10. Terrain. 11. The Nine Situations. 12. The Attack by Fire. 13. The Use of Spies. That's it. That's all that there is. That sounds very orderly, but the organization is is not perfect. In chapter 12, for example, the Attack by Fire, the chapter starts starts out with the five ways to attack by fire, And then it kind of drops that and veers off into some other topics. If you're interested, not to leave you hanging, the five ways that Sun Tzu identifies is, one, to burn soldiers in their camp, two, to burn their their food and fuel and other provisions, three, to, to burn baggage trains that are supplying the army, the fourth is to burn their weapons, storages and the fifth in their arsenal find that and burn it and the fifth is to rain fire on the army during battle there are tips provided for all of these methods be mindful of the wind for example you need to make sure that it will blow the fire toward your enemy and not back at you breezes during the daytime last longer than those that begin at night and then In the fire chapter, after we go through all that, we get advice like, don't move unless you see there's something to be gained from it. And no ruler should put troops into the field merely to gratify his own spleen. No general should fight a battle simply out of pique. Does not really relate to fire, but there it is in the fire chapter. The first thing that jumps out at you if you're reading this book looking for wisdom is that it's a mix of general philosophical principles and practical advice. Some general philosophical principles are are things like, in warfare, time can be your enemy. Delay is bad. Move as quickly as you can. Or, there are five five essentials for victory, which are, he will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. Two, he will win who knows how to handle both superior and inferior forces. Three, he will win whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout all its ranks. Four, he will win who, prepared himself, waits to take the enemy unprepared. And five, he will win who has military capacity and is not interfered with by the sovereign. Another famous general philosophical principle you'll find here is, all war is deception. And... Probably the most famous, which I've already mentioned. Know your enemy and yourself. Then there is slightly more practical advice, not to get into the items explaining the cost of chariots and how to build mounds to go over a wall and so on, which is very 
practical advice, limited in some sense to the very particular circumstances of Sunza's day. But more practical, I'm talking here about a category that's kind of in the middle, more practical than a general principle. Something like, don't ask your army to do something they cannot do. Or, conceal your actions from your enemy. Or, always put the right people in the right jobs. And then there are some practical, there's some practical advice that's a little more era-specific, like a soldier's spirit is keenest in the morning. It flags by noon, and by evening his mind can only think about returning to camp. Or bring your weapons and other war material with you, but plan to forage off the countryside. Those are practical, practical tidbits, but I don't know how applicable they would be in a modern world. Some of this turns into genuine philosophy. Here's a longer pass, or not that long, four sentences. Quote, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. To subdue the enemy without fighting is the acme of skill, end quote. This is basically a Taoist idea, and the Tao Te Ching was written about 400 BC, roughly contemporaneous with this. Let's read a little more to give you a sense of how the art of war delivers its advice. It's not long stories or descriptions or anecdotes. It's short, pithy, numbered aphorisms that read almost like an outline. There are times when it breaks things down into parts and subparts. The general and the particular are all mixed together, along with some quasi-religious or philosophical insertions. It reads very quickly. Here's chapter one. One, laying plans. One, Sunzu said, the art of war is of vital importance to the state. Two, it is a matter of life and death a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry which can on no account be neglected. 3. The art of war, then, is governed by five constant factors to be taken into account in one's deliberations when seeking to determine the conditions obtaining in the field. 4. These are, 1. The moral law, 2. Heaven, 3. Earth, 4. The commander, 5. Method and discipline. 5 and 6. The moral law causes the people to be in complete accord with their ruler, so that they will follow him regardless of their lives, undismayed by any danger. 7. Heaven signifies night and day, cold and heat, times and seasons. 8. Earth comprises distances, great and small, and danger and security, open ground and narrow passes, the chances of life and death. 9. The commander stands for the virtues of wisdom, sincerity, benevolence, courage, and strictness. 10. By method and discipline are to be understood the marshalling of the army in its proper subdivisions, the gradations of rank among the officers, the maintenance of roads by which supplies may reach the army, and the control of military expenditure. 11. These five heads should be familiar to every general. He who knows them will be victorious He who knows them not will fail. 12. Therefore, in your deliberations, when seeking to determine the military conditions, let them be made the basis of a comparison, in this wise. 13. 1. Which of the two sovereigns is imbued with the moral law? 2. Which of the two generals has most ability? 3. With whom lie the advantages derived from heaven and earth? 4. On which side is discipline most rigorously enforced? 5. Which army is the stronger? 6. On which side are officers and men more highly trained? 7. In which army is there the greater constancy both in reward and punishment? 14. By means of these seven considerations, I can forecast victory or defeat. 15. The general that hearkens to my counsel and acts upon it will conquer. Let such a one be retained in command. The general that hearkens not to my counsel nor acts upon it will suffer defeat. Let such a one be dismissed. 16. 
While heeding the profit of my counsel, avail yourself also of any helpful circumstances over and beyond the ordinary rules. 17. According as circumstances are favorable, one should modify one's plans. 18. All warfare is based on deception. 19. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. 20. Hold out baits to entice the enemy, feign disorder, and crush him. 21. If he is secure at all points, be prepared for him. If he is in superior strength, evade him. 22. If your opponent is of choleric temper, seek to irritate him. Pretend to be weak, that he may grow arrogant. 23. If he is taking his ease, give him no rest. If his forces are united, separate them. 24. Attack him where he is unprepared. Appear where you are not expected. 25. These military devices leading to victory must not be divulged beforehand. 26. Now the general who wins a battle makes many calculations in his temple ere the battle is fought. The general who loses a battle makes but few calculations beforehand. Thus do many calculations lead to victory, and few calculations to defeat. How much more, no calculation at all. It is by attention to this point that I can foresee who is likely to win or lose. That's it. (laughs) That's it. That's chapter one, laying plans. So you can see where it gives you something to think about if you're about to make some plans for a battle you're fighting, whether that's within a war or something you're planning to approach in your everyday life. It gives you questions to ask about who's stronger, my side or his side, who's on which side is there more discipline, who's got the advantage of, of morale, who's got the advantage of uh, terrain, so to speak. Tells you who's, who's done a better job of planning, and it gives you some ideas. If things, if you feel like you're strong, pretend to be weak. If you feel like you're weak, pretend to be strong, etc. Let's take our final break, then return with my initial confusion and subsequent clarity. Okay, so as I told you, that was my initial plan for The Art of War. I was going to talk about all the modern-day adaptations and argue that, well, before before I tell you what I was going to argue, why don't we just run through some of the modern day adaptations? I'm not talking about the book being used to teach soldiers at West Point or generals who mine it for wisdom and practical advice on the eve of battle and so on. I'm I'm talking about books like these. Um, here's one by Gerald Michelson, Sun Tzu, The Art of War for Managers, 50 Strategic Rules. Mark McNeely wrote, Sun Tzu and the Art of Business, Six Strategic Principles for Managers. Donald Krauss. The Art of War for Executives, Ancient Knowledge for Today's Business Professional. Peter Kammerer, The Art of Negotiation. D. Jeffrey, A Teacher Diary Study to Apply Ancient Art of War Strategies to Professional Development. David Barnheiser, The Warrior Lawyer, Powerful Strategies for Winning Legal Battles. Christopher Balch, The Art of War and the Art of Trial Advocacy. Is there common ground? Martin D. Byrne and Scott D. Mars. The Art of War and Public Relations. Strategies for Successful Litigation. Antonine Prabetic. The Trial Warrior. Applying Sun Tzu's The Art of War to Trial Advocacy. Samuel Solomon. The Art of War. Pursuing Electronic Evidence as Your Corporate Opportunity. Robert Greene's famous book, The 48 Laws of Power, is based on Sun Tzu's Art of War. And Tyler Lauletta, Bill Belichick explains... (laughs) This is an article. Bill Belichick explains how advice from Sun Tzu's The Art of War helped build the Patriots' dynasty. Here's a newspaper article I found. Luis Felipe Scolari, probably famous to some of you, 
wasn't a name I was familiar with, but I think he's a, a football coach. Not U.S. football, but football as the rest of the world calls it. Soccer, as we call it here. Uh, Luis Felipe Scolari is plotting England's downfall in Gelsenkirchen on Saturday by taking inspiration from a 2,600-year-old book on warfare written by a Chinese general. Sun Tzu's famous espousal of the importance of preparation, decisiveness, and selflessness has appealed to Scolari, who has the art of war as his bedside reading here in Germany. A familiar track to many leaders in business, politics, the military, and U.S. sport, the art of war has become increasingly popular in cricket, especially in Australia, and now in football. Here are some other titles I found in the bookstore, citing Sun Tzu as the font of wisdom on these other areas of life. The War of Art. Break through the blocks and win your inner creative battles. The Art of War Book and Card Deck, a strategy oracle for success in life, including a 128-page book and 52 inspirational cards. There is The Art of War for Women, The Art of War on Terror, Sun Tzu's Art of War for Countering Terrorism. The Art of Parenting, Sun Tzu's Art of War for Parenting Teens. The Art of Love, Sun Tzu's The Art of War for Romantic Relationships. And The Art of War for Dating, Master Sun Tzu's Tactics to Win Over Women. And this, The Art of Seduction, inspired by the book The Art of War, made by Sun Tzu. And what I thought I would be arguing was, none of these things are valid, these are hoaxes. It's snake oil, they're marketing schemes, they all make the same fundamental error, which is that war is a different animal altogether. War is existential, it's violent. The rules of warfare, completely different than rules of business or management or sports, let alone seduction and love. You kill people in war. That alone makes it completely different. I thought I'd be pointing out how ridiculous it is to try to apply lessons from a battleground to a boardroom or a bedroom. There are five ways to use fire to attack your enemy. Well, a General Schwarzkopf might say, okay, I can adapt fire to modern missiles. And so let me see. We can attack the enemy in his camp. We can use these missiles during engagement. We can attack supply lines. We can attack their munitions factories and storehouses. I'm forgetting what the fifth one was. Attacking their food and supplies, I think it was. So you could see where someone who is also engaged in war would be able to adapt, modernize Sun Tzu's uh, prescriptions, but it's almost comically unsuitable to a mid-level executive looking to get ahead. Okay, okay, I work for Coke. I'm going to go burn down some of Pepsi's factories and maybe rain some fire on them while they're out delivering their product. Well, my idea was that these books appeal to a kind of person, not necessarily a man, but let's be honest, it's easy to picture men falling for this, who was living a fairly soft life, a middle manager, let's say, but who loved the idea of being a warrior, who loved the idea that he could apply military wisdom to his next advertising buy or his next meeting with his employees, that he was tapping into something dangerous and masculine, to empower him to sell more Toyotas, Toyotas than the schlub who sits next to him on the showroom floor. What's my secret? Aha, I'll never tell. And quietly whispering to himself, Thank you, Master Sunsa. But I changed my mind about that approach when I actually read the book. And here's why I thought my... Uh, I, I, first of all, I thought my confusion was misplaced. I knew that I knew going in that there would be lessons you could take and analogies you could make, like know your enemy and yourself is advice that works in any context, including romance, if you could please remove the word enemy and not view the relationship as a battle, but just think of it as know the other person, what he or she wants and likes and fears, and know yourself, what your strengths and weaknesses and hopes and dreams are. That's all obvious. Knowledge improves things. It's why these books are so popular. It's so easy to apply them in such a broad sense. But what I didn't appreciate was that there's actually hardly any room in reading this book for the view that 
War is more complex than your next board meeting because this book simplifies war as well. It reduces it to component parts based on observations and abstracting those into principles and categories. It actually feels very much like Aristotle in this respect. I, I can't say that it won't help a business person as much as an actual military leader because I don't think standing alone it helps a military leader much either. It depends on the work that the reader does. Whether that reader is an emperor or a general or a teacher or a coach or Phil over in marketing, it gives you a framework for thinking, a launching pad for your own analysis of your situation. Mostly, if that situation is a competitive one, but even if it's not, even if you're trying to assess your position within your family or your own happiness. Well, let's stick to those competitive scenarios. Those are the most directly analogous. Even the outdated advice can be transformed into something thought-provoking and useful. The Art of War says, quote, When the men do not hang their cooking pots over the campfires, showing that they will not return to their tents, you may know that they are determined to fight to the death, end quote. Well, American generals would note similar things in Vietnam. You hear that often. They they say, this detail is what told me that the North Vietnamese were prepared to hold out forever. We see this on television now in Ukraine and elsewhere. Here's a sign of their resolve. Here's a sign that they are weakening. The population is supportive. The population seems to be against. But there will be conflicting signs, and maybe the population's resolve or weakness doesn't matter if your force is strong enough. The art of war can remind you to think about these things, but it won't give you the answers. The answers come from within, from your own application of the principles of the art of war and the observations and everything else that's stated in there to the actual real-life situation. And when I looked at the book that way, it seemed perfectly fair for Phil over in marketing to use the book just as some supreme commander of allied forces. It's not a deliverer of wisdom per se. It's a tool for unlocking wisdom in yourself. And it's been influential, very influential little tool. We think Napoleon read it. It was available to him, although you could say he probably ignored what he shouldn't have especially the passages about knowing the terrain and the conditions and the weather and the seasons. My Edward Tufte poster on the Napoleonic Army's disastrous trip to Moscow and the subsequent retreat will attest to that. A line from Sun Tzu that says, We are not fit to lead an army on the march unless we are familiar with the face of the country, its mountains and forests, its pitfalls and precipices, its marshes and swamps. End quote. One can imagine this being applied in Vietnam or the desert, etc. Some are a little harder to see. A quote like, Gongs and drums, banners and flags are means whereby the ears and eyes of the host may be focused on one particular point. End quote. Hmm. You might say, okay, a general could read that and develop the idea of shock and awe, turning the attention of an army on bright lights and big sounds of destruction. My point is that it takes creative thinking to draw that parallel, and it doesn't really tell you when to deploy it, or to what extent, or how much is too much, and how little is too little. Sun Tzu doesn't say how many gongs and drums or banners and flags you need, or when they will be most effective. He just gives you this as a reminder of a tactic so that you can apply it yourself, based on your own judgment and all the other factors you need to consider. Here's another example. The sight of men whispering together in small knots or speaking in subdued tones points to disaffection amongst the rank and file. End quote. For us, this might be, be a good observer of your enemy's willingness to fight, their morale, their commitment. You'll see signs of it. Sun Tzu tells you that you should then try to divide them. But that's kind of obvious, isn't it? But is it, is it kind of handy to have this as a checklist? Something to think about? I think so. Something that might spur some good new ideas as you prepare for battle or for your next hostile takeover or for next week's game against your dreaded crosstown rival. And this is why it's had such a long shelf life. Mao is said to have used it against the Japanese and then against his rivals. 
It influenced a Japanese warrior who is said to have reached near invincibility despite not using guns because of his study of the art of war. Ho Chi Minh was an advocate and practitioner. Many Vietnamese generals analyzed it and implemented its tactics against the French and later in the Vietnam War. It's been recommended reading for all U.S. military intelligence personnel, and it is used at West Point as part of the curriculum. Douglas MacArthur claimed to have kept a copy on his desk. Colin Powell read it and cited its influence. The KGB is reputed to have read it. Fraudsters have used it to deploy their schemes. And of course, all the business books and sports books, Bill Belichick included. Tupac Shakur read it. Movie villains often hold it up, indicates to, or quote it, indicates to us a kind of ruthlessness. It's probably second only to Nietzsche in this. The Gordon Geckos of the world, the James Bond villains. Dr. Melfi recommended it to Tony Soprano. In Star Trek, Riker quotes it to Picard, who is delighted to hear it's still being taught at Starfleet Academy. It's especially useful in business or other competitions. Lawyers headed to trial or the negotiation table or leaders to be more effective. But really, it's yours to use anywhere you need to be thoughtful about an endeavor where there's an enemy or an opponent to categorize and and know. And when you're tackling something complex, where you're leading other people, where your strategy and tactics are important, where you need to boil things down, or where you need to take a breath and make sure to double-check, to triple-check, or where you need the spark of new ideas. People sometimes say, if you have a problem, think about it before you go to sleep, and you might develop the answer when you wake up. Well, another tactic might be, think about your problem, read The Art of War, and see if running through these brief chapters on preparation and movements and obtaining victory help you come up with a way forward. Just... Don't get too carried away. Use your common sense, too. Here's where it's not helpful. It's not helpful in understanding the world or finding inner peace, unless maybe you're a restless general checking your plans and trying to get some sleep. It's not that helpful in learning about love or trying to grow. Maybe the way for you to grow is to give up war. Rise above conflicts. Turn your back on the fray like Cincinnatus and his plow. Well, this book isn't for you. Unless, I guess, it's to tell you that this is not how you want to live. i just skip the art of war and go to the Taoist texts. I could apply this to podcasting, I suppose. Aha, I want to win. So let's see, my enemies are all my fellow podcasters. Or maybe it's rival forms of entertainment. I know all the distractions that are competing for your time. I need to know them better. I need to know my own strengths and weaknesses. Need to attack from my positions of strength and undermine my competitors and send out disinformation and, hmm, maybe I should pay for secrets. No. That's horrible advice. (laughs) It's not how I want to live. It's not how I want to be. If this is winning, I don't need it. Now, some people might say, aha, Jack, that's why you're not winning. That's that's why your podcast is is sliding in the poll. I don't know. What is winning? Measured by what? How do you measure your success, your victories, your company increasing market share, your stock price going up? Well, what if you're a teacher? Is it average test scores, improvement, or is it more intangible than that? And... The art of seduction. Okay, know your partner and yourself. That's fine. But if you start thinking that all seduction is deception because war is and Sun Tzu told you and you want to be a warrior when it comes to seducing people, you are really, really on the wrong track, my friend. Stop. Erase that part of your brain. Put the book down. With all those caveats, this is a wonderful book. I love that it exists, that it survived this long, and that people are still finding it useful. It's a reminder that although we're not driving horse-drawn chariots across a plain, we're connected in a fundamental way with the minds of ancient people in civilizations barely recognizable. We have the same keys to success and the same potential pitfalls. Surprise existed then and exists now. 
as does exception and hubris and morale. To the extent the art of war is timeless and essential, it's because it taps into this shared humanity. Its observations of things feel like they were written 2,500 years ago. Its observations of humans feel like they were written yesterday. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Sunse, whoever he was, for giving us this work. Hopefully he's somewhere enjoying a quiet drink on a calm afternoon, his battles far behind him. Speaking of far, we're not too far away from episode 500, so please join us for that one. It's not going to be a, a huge party or anything, but maybe a quiet celebration. We have a Russian poet coming up soon after that, and Ford Maddox Ford, and one of Toni Morrison's early works. How about Black Shakespeare and Henry James, and an American icon of independent cinema, and Oscar Wilde's acquaintance, a gentleman conman at the heart of an international ring of spies and fraudsters. I'm Jack Wilson. That's a lot of good stuff coming up, by the way. Maybe I didn't mention that. <laughs> so please do subscribe. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.